Do, do something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. She booted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shit. Fuck you. Bruce. I love you. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Dad, gummit Conrad, I'm just happier than a pig in shit. Well, that's I, that's pretty damn happy. That is pretty happy. I got to tell you, I'm in a good mood today. I am back amongst the living. I was feeling pretty rough last week as I recorded Work. on the road with a thousand little snafus as we got set up with my mobile rig out of town, but... Man, we're back in the saddle. You're in Friendswood, Texas. I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. I don't feel like run over asshole. I don't feel like spilt fuck. I'm feeling pretty good, Billy Ray. Run over asshole and spilt fuck. If that ain't a way to start the goddamn show. Last week I was singing, ha, what's and, and people seem to like it. They like my Aerosmith shit, my Steven Tyler. I'm like, gah, 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 gah. I got that shit down, but you were under the weather. We were in a different place, and, and I just love how the negative Nellies like to come out and tell us that. But damn it, we're in a great mood. We're in our home studios. We're in rocking motherfucking roll. I'm pretty excited about today's episode. We uh, we were originally saying we're going to cover a show uh, from 2009 when I forgot in a fever dream that Bruce wasn't even fucking there. So we called an audible. Uh, to I've in been your gone ha- for years, dog. <laughs> <laughs> in your house three... September 24th, 1995. And I'm looking forward to this one. Cause I'll be honest. I was not watching wrestling when this show happened. So Me neither. When, yeah, but clearly when you watch this show, nobody <laughs> up there was watching. This is my first time seeing this show. So I'm excited to talk about it, but I'm even more excited to tell everybody about ancestry because ancestry is something that has been with us from the beginning of the show. And it's a big deal. If you ever wonder where your family comes from, and I know that your family has doubled down on this as has mine with over a hundred million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started. They're going to use precise geographic detail and clear cut historical insights. And this allows ancestry to let you trace your ancestors journey over time, following how and why your family move from place to place and to amplify those results. You can start a free trial on ancestor and even build the tree. That way the ancestors become more than just the name and only ancestry can tell t- such a rich story. We've talked about this on the show before. There's a lot of, um, kayfabe in wrestling history and, and wrestling families, you know, like Arn Anderson, maybe wasn't a real Anderson and maybe dusty Rhodes wasn't so poor growing up. There's lots of fun stuff that you can discover when you really dig into your roots and ancestry brings it to life and ancestry first came into my life. When my mom signed up years and years ago, uh, we've learned a lot. We've had a lot of fun. Whenever we get the whole family together around 
holidays. It's something that comes up again and again, and it's something your family's enjoyed as well. Right, Bruce? Absolutely. You remember the days and maybe you don't, but the days when you used to wait for the mailman to come and you'd rush out to the mailbox to see if there was anything in there for you. That's the way I was with Ancestry because I waited for that email to come in to let me know my results were in. It's so easy and you get to find out who's still around and who's out there that you never knew was out there and confirmed a lot of things for me and also opened up a few questions if you will like i know it did you and right now you go to ancestry.com slash podcast and get 20 percent off your ancestry dna kit that's ancestry.com slash podcast and get 20 percent off your ancestry dna kit ancestry.com slash podcast you are gonna love it and it'll give you another reason to go to the computer and check your damn email well, and here's what everybody's going to be emailing about today in your house three. It's the triple header. It's going down September 24th, 1995 from the Saginaw civic center right there in Saginaw, Michigan. It drew 6,500 fans. This is the third in your house pay-per-view event. Uh, I guess they started just a few months prior. Did, did you see the first two? Well, I have seen the first one. I don't believe I've seen the second one. We're going to have to go back and, and find a way to watch that one. Okay. I'm just making sure because you, you weren't watching at the time. And I know you had reason to go back, see the first one. Cause it was the first one. We gave away a damn house. Yeah. That but. was kind of fun. And the, and the second one is uh diesel and Sid on top. Um, Sean Michaels is working with Jeff Jarrett. And I know that we've covered that match, uh, in particular. So I've seen that match, but I don't think I ever stuck around to see diesel and Sid in the main event. Uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't either way. Uh, in your house, sort of an interesting concept. We've touched on this a little bit in the past. Once upon a time, the WWE did four big shows a year. I think everybody knows it was Royal rumble. It was WrestleMania. It was SummerSlam and survivor series. Eventually King of the ring pops up and somewhere along the way, you guys decide, Hey, why don't we start doing these more regularly? But instead of having all of them be 24 or 29 95, why don't we take it from a three hour show to a two hour show, reduce the price and keep that revenue going. And we know in 1997, that's going to pivot, but talk to me a little bit about the original idea. And I guess WCW was sort of proof of concept on this first about doing regular pay-per-views, but you guys had a different take with making them shorter and reducing the price. Talk me through that. You're looking at, this is a time where for so long we had done cassette tapes and you would wait for the cassette to come out, which would normally be anywhere from 60 to 90 days a lot of times after the event itself had taken place. So pay-per-view, it was bigger, and it was along the lines of you're watching direct TV and you would see all this emptiness under the pay-per-view. They would have a few select movies, and you could watch a movie basically every 15 minutes. And we started thinking about Cassette sales, they're dwindling. People are looking. This is a a much easier option for them. If you want to see it, you get it on pay-per-view. And the reduced price was indirect from the the video sales. Um, You had years before that, I, I remember Batman, I think, was the first cassette tape that came out at $9.99. And they blew up the the video world with that, with that one tape. 
And we were looking, okay, let's blow up pay-per-view. Let's do a shorter pay-per-view with a reduced price. So it's not going to be as big as the big five, but it'll, it'll still be a, a pretty good card. And, and for the live event shit, we still had a, a three hour show basically, but it was, it was an experimental deal to see if there was an appetite for it. If there was an appetite for more, there wasn't nearly as much wrestling on television for free at the time. So it was kind of a novel concept. Okay, well, let's give them a pay-per-view every month and see how they respond. And they, there seemed to be an appetite for it. This is an interesting concept because it's roughly half price, fourteen ninety-five, uh, And we're on the heels of SummerSlam 95, which is one of those big five. And we see Diesel retain the world title, beating King Mabel. That's your main event, SummerSlam 95. Shawn Michaels would successfully defend the IC title in another classic ladder match over Razor Ramon. And, um, this is called in your house, triple threader for a specific reason. For the first time in history up to that point, we're going to see all the titles in the entire company on the line. Of course, our main event is our world champion diesel teaming up with our intercontinental champion, Shawn Michaels, and they're taking on the tag champs, Owen Hart and Yokozuna. And the rules of the match are. If Sean and diesel win, they're the tag champs. However, if either Owen or Yoko get the win by pin or submission, they get the title of whichever man they beat. So if Owen is the guy to make diesel submit, he's your new world champion. But if Owen were to pin Sean Michaels, he's the intercontinental champion. Of course, same with Yokozuna. I got to tell you, this is a pretty interesting concept. I don't know that. I remember you guys doing this in a pay-per-view prior to this. Do you remember how this idea came together and, and who was all for it? And did anybody say, I don't know that that's a little out there. Oh, I remember exactly how it came together because we were looking for some unique concepts for in your house and trying to do things differently because you're now looking at a pay-per-view every month. And that was a little bit challenging. Uh, it was Pat Patterson's idea and Pat had, we started talking about all these different scenarios that we could do. And one, it was one thing led to another. And the idea was eventually to get to Sean and diesel with all the championships. And that was the original concept going into this damn thing. And then trying to spin out of it, um, possibly Sean and diesel splitting up with the tag team championships and and having that dilemma. Those were, the original like conception and, and how we got to it. And there were a lot of, well, what if, if we did this, what if this happened and what if that happened? So we went into it with that idea in the back of our head. And obviously from the, the results and everything that went down, didn't go all the way through with a lot of that shit, but that's how it started. It was different. It was kind of a, a first time ever to have all the championships on the line in one match and, and a unique concept. If Yoko pins diesel, he's the WWE champion. If, if they pin Sean, they're the intercontinental champion. Um, and you know, vice versa, if Sean or diesel pin either Owen or Yoko, they're the tag team champion. So it was no matter what the finish was in theory, you're getting you new champions. A, you had a unique situation. 
All right, let's write a timeout right now. And I got to tell you, this is one I'm excited about. I can't believe I'm saying this. All Elite Wrestling is here. Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. Get ready for the revolution with All Elite Wrestling. Of course, we're talking about Dynamite on TNT. It's the most exciting professional wrestling in the last decade. Made for wrestling fans by the wrestlers themselves. And AEW flies higher, hits harder. And with their all-inclusive roster of superstars, they're breaking all the boundaries. From Chris Jericho to Cody and Brandy Rhodes, of course, the Young Bucks, Nyla Rose, and more. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises this Wednesday, October 2nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. I can't believe this is happening. Of course, if you're listening to this show, you know the talk of the wrestling business has been All Elite Wrestling. And man, it all comes to a head this Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. Set your alarm. 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. I don't mean for this to sound weird, and I know that some of our listeners are going to have fun with the way I'm phrasing this, but it's been said once upon a time that in order for you to be really a top guy, the top guy, Vince has to sort of fall in love with you. And I think when you look at the statement you made a minute ago of, well, the idea was how do we get all the belts? on diesel and Sean, it feels like Vince is in love with diesel and Sean at this point. Is that fair to say? I don't know if he was or not, but that wasn't Vince's idea. That was our idea. Our idea was to get everything on them to then blow them up. That was, that was the, the impetus of this whole thing where Pat and I are talking about like, okay, let's load them up. So that you think these guys are impenetrable and you can't, is that even a fucking word? It is now, you know? Okay. Impenetrable. Yeah. That they're, they're on top of the world and, and then blow it up. So that was the, you know, as you're going into this shit and we're doing this and everything's happening so damn fast that, okay, let, let's do this. Let's go here. And then obviously shit changed as, as we got into it. But, um, no, it wasn't even Vince's idea. Vince was like, what the fuck do you do with it? And his his first thought was, goddamn, they can't be tag team champions. Which, again, we'll we'll get there. Talk to me about, you know, my 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 freestyle that maybe Vince has to be in love with you to be the top guy. Like, I know that certainly he rode Hulk Hogan to the promised land and you know, then uh the Shawn Michaels run is really the one I think of next, because it does feel like whenever Vince is on commentary, he's really selling it. And we've heard for a long time that Vince had a different relationship with Sean, where it was maybe different than the relationship he had with Brett or Hogan. And, you know, obviously, you know, he's going to have a, a really tight relationship for a while with, with Steve Austin, a very much open door and a different type of relationship again than what he had with Sean. But we hear that, he had that with John Cena as well. Is there some sort of, Hey, when we're going to give you the ball, when we're going to make you the champ, when I'm going to sort of put my company on your shoulders, we're going to get a lot closer here. We're going to, we're going to be on the same page about what we're doing. Cause we're, we're not doing it, you know, any other way than together. Well, that's accurate, but, uh, you know, I think that a lot of it starts <laughs> most of the time. It'll start from a whole different. Uh, relationship. I mean, it was Shawn Michaels wasn't Vince's favorite person in the beginning by any stretch of the imagination. You can go down the list 
of those talent. But when they get to that point, yeah, you got to have a strong relationship and a strong bond to be able to work together as, as closely as we all do. And Vince wants their input just as much as anything because they're the guys out there carrying that ball. And they're the ones that are putting the company on their back. So, yeah, the, but that relationship is built over time. It's not like, God damn, I love you and I'm going to make you champion. Oh, no, no. I, don't, I didn't it, mean. It's, it's I'm going to make you. We're going we're gonna to put this on you and we're going to get through it together. And, ho- and if a bond builds, then a bond builds. Sometimes a bond doesn't build. Yeah, I didn't mean to insinuate that, you know, these guys are holding hands and writing love notes and doing picnics. I was trying to not insinuate that. I I just mean in terms of, hey, this is our guy. Let's give him every opportunity we can. We're going to do everything we can to sort of put the franchise on him. And it feels like at different times he's done that with Roman Reigns or he's done that with John Cena. Certainly did it with Stone Cold and he did it with Shawn Michaels and he tried to do it with Brett and he did it with Hogan. And this just feels like right now, for whatever reason, in 1995, man, it's all about Shawn Michaels and Kevin Nash. Yeah, and they they were the guys that he he was looking to and and, and putting the show the company on their shoulders. How so much, yeah, that bond was developing during this time. Is Vince um, when he talks about Shawn and Diesel in this era? Uh, does he does he believe that Shawn is the best wrestler in the world and Diesel is sort of the airport guy? Like, goddamn, look how big he is. And he's quote unquote natural. He's not this gassed out of his mind guy that maybe people would raise an eyebrow about just a couple of years prior. I think the argument could be said on, on, on both of them. Uh, Cause yeah, Kevin Nash was that guy to this day, Kevin Nash walks into a room. He's damn near seven feet tall and Jack looks up. like a fucking, it looks like a fucking matinee idol. And even now he's, you know, gray hair and his debonair does the damn, you know, uh, stroking the goatee and all that shit. Um, cause he has a quote weak chin, but, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, they, they were a package and Sean, just the way Sean strutted around everywhere. Sean Michaels looked like he was somebody. So they lived it to the hilt and, and yeah, Kevin Nash was the kind of guy when you look at him, especially during this time, he stood out. I mean, you could pick him out of a crowd and he was somebody that we were looking to get behind and move up that ladder. Let's, uh, mention briefly that this is, uh, this is an interesting time in the wrestling business, much like it is now, I guess, but nitro has just come out a few weeks prior to this. Uh, I think everybody knows by now it's September 4th, 1995 and raw is preempted that day. So I'm curious, did you and Vince and a few others watch Nitro together? I was in Hong Kong, dog. <laughs> I was thousands upon thousands of miles away from that shit. And you know, I'll never forget it. Uh, I'll never forget getting that phone call from Pat Patterson, uh, letting me know that Lex Luger was on Nitro. What was the phrase? Oh, fucking Lex Luger. He showed up on Nitro. Fuck him. They can have him. Pat was happy. So was I. Uh, <laughs> like, all right, great. No more Lex. Um, you know, we had, we had been doing the, the stuff with 
Lex and Davy Boy as a team. You know, they were Davy Boy with the Union Jack and Lex with the American flag. And Lex left right in the middle of it to, to go on to Nitro. But yeah, it was a it was a bit of a pivotal pivotal moment. But in WWE land, they were doing the uh open for Raw when all that Nitro shit was going on. I don't think anybody was paying that much attention to them uh, in the beginning. Well, the first Nitro on September 4th does a 2.5 rating. Of course, as you mentioned, Lex Luger debuts as the big surprise. The next week, September 11th, it's the first head-to-head meeting between Raw and Nitro. Raw does a 2.5. Nitro does a 2.4. And on that September 11th edition of Nitro, during the first head-to-head meeting between the shows, Eric Bischoff gave away the results for raw live on nitro while he's doing commentary. What was Vince's reaction when that happened? And and as an old school wrestling person yourself, what did you think of that move? What a chicken shit, little piece of shit. That's what we thought. Um, you know, it, it was, it was unheard of to, to do that. Even, even in a wrestling war, but then again, I guess when you go back and look at wrestling wars, even in the old Kentucky territories where uh, Angelo Poffo was warring with the Jarrett's over Tennessee and, and what have you, the they had all of their guys shoot these interviews where they exposed the business. All of their top guys got on and said, hello, my name is uh, whatever Ronnie Garvin's real name is. I go by the name Ron Garvin, and I play this character on television. But what we do, look, folks, we don't hurt each other. We we all travel together. We have living. We have families. We're this. We're that. Bob Orton Jr. did it. Uh, Bob Roop did it. Uh, you know, the Poffos. It was to battle Memphis and Nashville, the the guys that dominate in Tennessee and to hurt their business and say, Hey folks, we're not lying to you. We're the, we're the good guys here. We're being straight with you. Um, and it's always funny when people talk about exposing the business, all the blame goes to Vince McMahon and you go back to the shooters, you know, guys like Ronnie Garvin and Bob Roop who were legit badasses in their own right. Um, that were the ones that came out. Vern Gagne, years ago, went to the State Athletic Commission and told him, hey, this is a work, guys, just so he wouldn't have to pay taxes in Colorado and in in, uh, Nevada. So, you know, Vern did it long before Vince did. And smart promoters, I, I give Vern a thumbs up, man. Good, smart move. So anyway, Eric doing this, it was unheard of. And, and this was a new tactic and one that, we really didn't see coming. And what Eric was doing was extolling the virtues of, Hey folks over here on nitro, we're live. Anything can happen. And I'm going to promise you that it will happen. The guys on the others, they, they take their shit weeks ago. Let me tell you what's hap- What's going to happen tonight. And the fucker was right. <laughs> why but like and god damn it he was right how did he know it's right you know i'm 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 he wasn't even there he wasn't even there yeah like how how ethel 
How the fuck did he know? That bastard. He ruined it for me. Um, so awesome. But yeah, it was that was a new tactic, man. That was a new one. And I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. Uh, I was pissed off when it happened. However, in a war and you're, you're fighting for your life and you, you want to take over, um, let I me, guess. Let me ask, did it really become clear to you? Like on some level, WCW had always been, you know, the little engine that could, or maybe the little engine that couldn't. I mean, try as they might, these guys had never even turned to fucking profit. So Vince McMahon, probably not too threatened by what WCW's putting out there. Not at all. And then the nitro thing happens and you think, oh, well, this could be real competition. They took one of our guys. And then the next week they're giving away your results. Did, is that, was it week one? Was it the announcement of nitro or was it Lex Luger jumping or giving away the results that made you understand, oh, fuck, they want a war here. Well, I, it probably took a little longer. Uh, it, it's, I'll, I'll go back to, this is how I'll describe it best. It's John Layfield tells the story of getting in a fight with Steve Blackman at baggage claim. And Bradshaw says, Mr. Pritchard, he hit me eight times where I realized I was in a fight. This kind of what would happen with Nitro because we we looked at them and said, okay, they're going to do their thing. They're going to try and and stake out some real estate here on Monday night. Um, we were beating them. It wasn't that big of an issue. We thought that, all right, we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. And kudos, Derek Bischoff for having the balls to do what he did. And, and he, he went a completely different route than what was traditional. And I think that there were people even within his own organization that were like, eh, I don't know about that, Eric. And he did it anyway. You know, he, he went out and said, okay, let's, let's go. So, um, the gloves came off, but it's, it wasn't, it wasn't like we were in a war by the, at this time. It wasn't a war. It was an, it was a nuisance. It was an annoyance. This little prick. Yeah. Who the um, fuck is he? Why is it? Yeah. Yeah. You do, John Davidson lookalike wannabe motherfucker. His jet black hair and all that shit. And, and here's the deal. Like he's taking all kinds of little digs. One of the things he says here when he's giving away the results is. Shawn Michaels beat the big guy with a super kick that he wouldn't be able to get a green belt with at the corner karate studio. The big guy, of course, is Sid, and this is a, a two week prior taping. So it's easy for him to have these results and he's taking shots throughout the entire show. Some of the things he's saying, like when Luger's coming out, he says, yeah, he left the Bush leagues to play with the big boys and he won't be the last one. And then he says something like, uh, several times he says something like just nine days ago, Lex Luger was in the WWF. And then he had Steve McMichael say something like, don't turn, turn the channel and watch a show named after an uncooked egg. And, uh, they also changed Mike pissed me off again. Mike Rotunda's name to VK wall street. Of course, the VK being a little tongue in cheek for Vincent Kennedy. And, um, on that nitro Luger challenged Hulk Hogan for the world title. I guess it could have been called the dream match. Cause I don't think it had happened up until that point. And during the match when Luger's in trouble, 
Bischoff says something like Luger's rusty because it hasn't been facing the level of competition that he's got here in WCW, which is, I don't know, interesting to say the least. Um, and he's saying that, you know, their world champion was barely a mid-level guy here. Now that's a shot at diesel who of course is the WWF world champion, but back when he was in WCW, he was steel as part of the master blasters and Oz. And then of course, Vinny Vegas. I mean, when you see and hear this, what's Vince's reaction? You've told us what your reaction is. What's Vince think of this and, and what do the boys think? Well, I think the boys were, again, it was more of an annoyance and a nuisance than it was taking it really seriously, but it was, all right, you little prick, you'll get yours. Um, so we didn't think it would have that much effect really in, in the very beginning. And we, we were trying to keep our eye on our business. We had so many different things going on at the time, uh, between the federal trial and all that other bullshit and, and taking place. It was, it was a, we had other shit going on that was more important than Eric Bischoff giving away our uh, results. And you're trying to maintain your own business and you're trying to, our business was, and business wasn't good at the time. So you're, you're battling things on all fronts. And frankly, at the time, that was just, keep saying it, it was an annoyance. Yeah, it's just kind of like, okay, they'll, they'll come and go. Um, they've, they've been on the air on TBS forever and they'll have their little audience and we'll have our audience. Well, it is fascinating that all of a sudden there's competition and fast forward to here we are now. And we're on the heels of maybe another little wrestling war. Maybe not, uh, on the September 11th raw, you guys have a new opening for the show. I'm sure that was just timing and coincidence because you were off the week prior. Uh, what do you remember about the new opening? Cause it would be reported that it was, uh, recorded on September 7th, which would imply that maybe it was done after nitro had debuted. Is this new taping done in response to, Hey, there's a new show. We want to update our look and feel as well. Sort of step our game up or was it in the works long before? And this is just the way it shook out. Oh yeah, we on September fifth we got everybody on the phone. So okay, we get you guys get up here. We're bringing all the talent in, and and we're gonna do all this shit and have all of these film crews and helicopters and all this other shit. And hey, we hey, did all that in two days. Hey, dickhead! I didn't mean you did it in two days. You knew that Nitro was coming. It's not like you're flipping through the fucking channels and like, oh goddamn, a wrestling show. You fucking knew before the fifth. I'm asking. Did you know it was, it, no, it had been in the works. It had been in the works for a while <laughs> and God damn it. <laughs> I fucking hate you sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why that tickled me, but it's like, come on, Bruce. Like, yeah, on September 5th, we got all the phones. Oh my God. Oh my God. Lex Luger's there. We've got to do something. Well, no. The, 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 uh, the report is it's recorded on the roof of Titan towers between seven and ten fifteen. I love that. It's so specific. It lets you know for sure. Somebody's a leak reportedly costs $200,000 for what's essentially four minutes of footage. 
And there were major stories both Friday and Saturday in the Stanford paper regarding the taping. Many people living in the area called the police complaining about the searchlights and helicopters. The federal aviation administration also received multiple complaints and a second day story had police saying the event was perfectly legal and the Titan had filled out all the necessary paperwork for everything it did. And the Darien police chief, uh, high McManus, which sounds like a wrestler, uh, said the event attracted a lot of attention and was not a serious problem. And of course, a week later, Meltzer would report a retraction and say the 200 grand was greatly exaggerated. It was actually under a hundred grand. Well, if anybody knows for sure, it would be you, Bruce. I have a feeling you were heavily involved in this. Chat me up. What do you remember about the shoot? Did you make that name up? Hi, McManus. I, I read that right out of the observer and thought, oh, Boy. well, it's gotta be fucking true. Cause Dave was there. Well, you know, he wrote the check for it. You know, what's funny is a minute ago when you, when you were talking about Eric giving away the results and you're like, and then he was right. I don't know why that tickled me, but I can only think probably because he read it out of the observer, but I didn't want to get you fired up. So chat me up. What do you remember about this shoot between seven and ten fifteen PM on September 7th? Well, on September 4th, we were all sitting around, we were huddled around a TV. It was, it was, it was a big one, about 12 inches. It was, it was only black and white, but we were all huddled around it. When we saw Lex, we said, oh my God, we've got to do something. We just started calling people and we said, can you get a, anybody know anybody with a helicopter? And then we found the helicopter guys, the helicopters are us. Okay. And all right. We, so let's okay. take a pause. So but in real life, I think in you've real told, life, I think we, you've mentioned before that Lex was supposed to be a part of that shoot. Right. Yeah, he was. And I was happy. He wasn't. Um, and that was, and you know what? And that was my, it wasn't my first clue. It was, it was my, um, that's when you knew like, my hey. stand. It was, well, no, it was my stand basically because I kept refusing to put him on the list just so I would bring it to Vince's attention that he hasn't signed yet. Vince and when he signs, I'll put him on the list and I would get my ass chewed out for it every time, but I just had a bad feeling about it. And, and, and tell the truth here, whose responsibility was it to get him signed? And, and every time it came up, did Vince not say, well, so-and-so says it's fine or so-and-so has it handled or what JJ is was the head of talent relations at the time. Okay. So. Whatever that miscommunication was, I don't know, but it was JJ's responsibility at the time. From a creative standpoint, Lex was being difficult and going down the list, you know, you keep looking at it and going, okay, well, you know what? His, uh, contracts up. I, this is the carrot we can dangle. Sign your fucking contract. We'll, we'll get you in the raw open. We'll have you in this, but we had planned it probably, I bet you it was at least two months of planning through storyboards. And I mean, it was an elaborate fucking shoot. I was not there. I was still in Hong Kong. Um, but it was, I was a part of the planning and the storyboarding and, and all of that shit. Um, well ahead of time for a long, you know, like I said, it was probably about a month or two ahead of time at least because we had we had always changed our open basically for the fall when everybody was having new shows, you would change the look, you would change your open, kind of blow it up and do something different. And that's what this was. 
So we had had it planned for a while and we were, it was in the works, but it was, it was elaborate as hell with the, we had the Stanford police department involved with the cops running up the ramp at the, the deal. But how the concept originally started was we were looking at what could we do different? And the, the first the first idea that we were talking about, God, wouldn't it be cool to have a ring on top of the Empire State Building? Mm. Or what if you had a ring on top of one of the World Trade Centers and you, you had this spectacular scene with searchlights and shit and, and you basically are shooting it from above and you're – you're throwing out all these ideas and then it's like, well, goddamn, we've, we've got a building. It's our headquarters. We've got the giant logo and the flags and everything up here. Uh, we've got room for a ring and you're not going to have as many restrictions in Stanford in our home that you would have elsewhere. Um, I mean, there were crazy ideas thrown out. I always would go back to the promo Superstar Billy Graham used to cut many years ago. They had a Superstar Billy Graham showed up and they had to put rope rings around the Eiffel Tower to be able to hold the superstar of the ring. And I'm like, you know, I'd throw out Eiffel Tower, all these different landmarks and shit. And we settled on fucking the WWE headquarters. And that's how it all started. It became what spectacle can we create? for this chaos and all this shit happening. Um, and storyboards were made and, and we, that's what we came up with. All right, Bruce, let's run a timeout right now to tell everybody about save with Conrad.com. You know, for years we've been talking about save with Bruce, but now we got save with Conrad.com and, uh, Bruce right now, interest rates are as low as they've ever been the entire time you and I are doing the podcast. So much so that even you are taking advantage and, uh, you're doing a loan yourself right now. Absolutely. And where did I go? I went save with Conrad. You know why? Because it was easy. It was fast. It was straightforward. And I got the loan I needed and no hassle, no fuss. Everything you need is right there at save with Conrad.com. We make it fast. We make I it easy. I should just called you. Yeah, I guess you could. It was weird when it popped up in my email. You have a new lead from Bruce Pritchard. So I was like, okay, well, I guess Bruce is buying something. Here's the deal. Whether you're looking to buy a house, maybe it's your first time. Maybe you're just ready for a bigger house. We can help you with that. In Bruce's scenario, he had a house he needed to get rid of. He wanted to buy another house. I took a look, gave him some advice. He got the right realtor. He got the right sale. His house is going to sell very, very fast for more money than he thought possible. And he's going to get very seamlessly into his next house. And we can help you make that happen right now too at savewithconrad.com. Now, maybe you're not looking to move. Maybe you just want to take advantage of these historic low interest rates, save a little money, get a cheaper monthly payment, pull some cash out, knock out some credit card debt, do a little remodeling, whatever you're looking for. It can happen at savewithconrad.com right now, or just fire me off an email, conrad at savewithconrad.com. It really is that simple. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if you're just looking for some advice on your credit, we can help with that too. We want to make this easy. We want to be a resource. If you've got questions, we've got answers. It's savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. 
Well, what else you've come up with is somehow, as you would call him the pirate, but as he's now known PCO, Jean Pierre Lafitte is, uh, in a prime spot here on September 15th in Montreal, he's got a world title shot against diesel. There's a lot of controversy about this match and we've touched on this before, but we'll do it again here now. Uh, PCOs from the area. He's booked as the local big draw because he's the local hometown boy. He's a big part of the, the local promotions for the show. And Meltzer would report when he arrived to the building, he's told by Tony Gurria that it's a jackknife finish and he immediately refuses. And Gurria tries to talk him into it. And PCO says he thought the finish would not only hurt him, but would hurt future crowds in Montreal. And he would walk out and not do the match and rather cost himself the job than do the job here. And eventually Vince McMahon is called at home. And after a 15 minute conversation, he and Pierre agreed to a double count out. Diesel was really mad about this made worse by Shawn Michaels. Who's riling him up about it, saying that Pierre should be fired and Meltzer would continue. There's always been heat between Michaels and Pierre to begin with, because Michaels isn't well liked in the locker room. And if people try and defend Michaels by pointing out his work rate, the response is usually that Pierre can do anything Michaels can do. And Pierre said he'd do a job for diesel anywhere except his hometown. And there we have an impasse. And of course, Shane Douglas has famously told the story that he was there, of course, at the time as Dean Douglas, and he saw all of this happen. And he sees Shawn Michaels sort of instigating it and stirring up the pot and standing behind Pierre, sort of mouthing to Kevin Nash, fuck this motherfucker, jackknife, one, two, three, and flipping him off and all the silliness. And after the match where it's a double count out, Shawn comes backstage and is cussing everyone out, including Pierre. Pierre's fired up and Pierre's so wound up. He goes to Diesel's dressing room. No fight happens here, but people are not happy with the double count out. And it's been reported that later at the hotel, Shane Douglas saw the click sort of get everybody together and invited him into the room. And they're sort of kicking around the idea of how can they get revenge on this fuck Pierre who thinks he's too good to do the job for our champion. And they talked about, maybe we should get him fired. And allegedly somebody says, what if we just have Vince starve him out? And it wasn't too long. And the, the pirate is no more. I know you're going to poke holes in this. I know you weren't there for this, but you probably heard about the issue. You're a little old school. What do you think of Pierre stand? What do you think of Vince's compromise? And what do you think about the rumor and innuendo around this sort of backstage allegation that the click were trying to shit on Pierre. Well, again, I wasn't there. Um, so I can't speak to actual, whatever he said, she said, uh, he did, she did bullshit. I have no idea. Uh, I do know that when they got there and I don't know, and I do not know if the finish was jackknife one, two, three or what. Um, but I do know that Pierre wanted to change the finish and that he was unhappy with the finish. There's been a long standing situation, I guess is the best thing I can word. I can think of in Montreal, Montreal was, was treated different, for whatever reason different than everywhere else in the fucking world. 
they got a different show. They got, uh, you know, their French Canadian stars were featured on our shows. Hence Pierre right. being in the main event against diesel. Um, so the French Canadian talent took their place on the card very seriously. And they were very concerned, um, about how they were viewed. I mean, the whole nine yards, it was, it was very different than every place else in the world. And to this day, I don't get it because, you know, now when we go there, it's, they get the same show that you're going to get in Montreal. You're going to get in Kansas city. Um, with the same draw, but at that time it was different and it was, it was a different thing. So Pierre was concerned about it. They came up with it, whatever finish that they came up with. And you know, that was it, but it was viewed by the talent. And I gotta tell you, not everybody, not everybody was on Pierre's side on this one. Right. You know, there were, there were quite a few people that were on the other side of it saying, why in the fuck are there different rules in Montreal than every place else? So it wasn't as clear cut as some people like to paint Oh, fucking diesel and Sean flexing their muscles and poor, poor Pierre. It was, it was both sides of that. There were those that wanted to side with Pierre because it was diesel and Sean. Then there were those that were like, why in the fuck are there different rules in Montreal? Well, and and also too, and I don't mean for this to be weird, but, and I really don't mean for this to be disrespectful, but just based on the way the cards had been done, who the fuck is this guy to not want a job to the champ? Like back in the day, everybody lost to Hogan. And by the way, he's a fucking giant. It's not unbelievable that a giant would beat you. And he was routinely beating other guys. I mean, I mean, Bob Backlund, you know, I don't know. That's a weird comparison to make, but. Here's a guy who was the top guy for a long, long time. Pierre never was, and he got beaten seconds. So it's not, shouldn't be that big of a deal. And I realize it's a different time, but I don't know. It's just fascinating to me to talk about even all these years later. Yeah. And it really, and it was fascinating then because for me, it was hard to justify, but to everybody else, it seemed like, no, you don't understand it's Montreal. So I just used to take the stance of, I don't understand it's Montreal. <laughs> I would I'm curious. What did Pat think? Because Pat Pat's local. I mean, was he the guy who was sort of on Pierre's side saying, no, it's Montreal. Oh God. No. Uh, well, uh, Pat did subscribe to that theory as did Vince, but that goes back. The whole Montreal different booking even goes back to when Vince's dad and with the Montreal promotion and Vince's dad would send guys up there. It goes back to Andre and just, it was a different, it's a different world in Montreal. It's a different world. You know, they, they want to be their own country. <laughs> you know, there's parts, there's parts of that city where they only speak uh, French Canadian Quebecois and he's at a pace. Um, well, but I'm asking specifically about Pat. Do you remember? Cause Pat was, fam- well, I think Pat subscribed to the theory that Montreal was different. Okay. I just wanted to get where you thought he came down on that because I know he had a soft spot for Sean. And, uh, if Sean probably felt really strongly about something, then Pat would, would at least lend an ear to hear it. I Pat would lend an ear no matter what it was. But I think that in this situation, Pat would also empathize with the, the Montreal situation. 
and say, ah, oh, it's Montreal and a better case. I chase, oh, you don't understand. We should, so we, we should mention that's not the end of the story. The, uh, the, we've never talked about this, but the very next day, uh, there's a rematch September 16th. This is in Quebec city. And this time Pierre does a leg drop off the top rope, but mistimes it and lands with his butt directly on diesel's face. Nash gets up immediately and is throwing live rounds, super hard punches, hits a jackknife, and there's the pin. And Meltzer would say, one WWFer told me the schedule finish was another double countout, but since the night before, Pierre was adamant he'd do the job anywhere but Montreal. I don't know if that was the case, but it was the talk of all the dressing room this week. Anyway, by the end of the week, all the problems cleared up, and that's probably why Pierre did a clean job the next week on Raw. We should mention... We're saying it's all cleared up. He's gone by November. So, you know, two months later, he's out of here. What do you remember about hearing that? Uh, maybe Pierre landed on his face. Maybe there was some live rounds. Maybe the finish was changed. And maybe just to make sure that we get our point across, we're going to have him lose on raw. Well, I'll go back to, first of all, on Pierre, I never remember ever having a problem with Pierre doing a job anywhere. And that's why I think that this sticks out so much because here was a guy that was all business all the time. And, you know, French Canadians are French Canadians and and they're, they're proud of their heritage and they're proud of where they come from. And, And it's different. I mean, that's the best I can tell you is it's different, but we never had a problem with Pierre. And I don't know that Vince even viewed this as a problem. Right. I think that it, it got stirred internally and I don't think it was as one sided as it's been, you know, as the legend has grown as it, as it's become. So to that, I say, I believe that the, the finish the next day probably was diesel going over and, everything being fine. I don't remember the, the butt in the face. Um, if it happened, it happened, but I, I personally don't recall that. And as far as the pirate gimmick, um, our mateys, uh, um, God damn. I just chalked that up to, well, that was the best gimmick in the world, but the son of a bitch could catch a fucking ball. There's a deep cut right there to the early days of something to wrestle. And, uh, the idea that he was legally blind, but could catch a ball. How would you classify that Bruce? It's a fucking miracle dog. There you go. That's a fucking miracle. Please. Next up. We should talk about Tatanka. Meltzer would say that Tatanka's suspension looks to have turned into a firing. The story is there was an alleged incident and something must've happened to cost him his job. In December, 1994 at a hotel in Anaheim, California, involving a woman who was apparently threatening a lawsuit and other WWF wrestlers. So chat me up. What do you remember about Tatanka's sort of curious end here in the company? Well, I'll tell you what we do on our side. And the beautiful thing about this time period for me was that Pat and I were separate from everything else and we got okay (laughs) you don't have this guy for six weeks i don't care i don't want to know okay great we don't have him for six weeks or uh hey we had an issue 
this guy's gone. If it was something like that, Vince didn't tell us for our own protection so that we weren't involved. If we knew, then we knew. But on this situation, all I remember on that was guys were going to go part ways with Chris Chavez. Okay. Write him out. Let's go next. Wow. And we didn't, you know, we tried to stay out of that. Where, you know, that, that arm's length. Okay. If I don't need to know, I don't want to fucking know. Well, I'll tell you what you got, you got me curious now. I'm going to have to go dig that up. I'm going to have to go figure out what's what, uh, let's talk about Jesse Ventura. Uh, it comes out some more details about his lawsuit with Titan in the observer. And, um, he says some notes from the Jesse Ventura lawsuit being upheld by the court of appeals. The three judges hearing the appeal voted two to one in favor of Ventura with circuit judge Morris. Shepard Arnold writing a dissenting opinion. You're just making up names tonight. That's some fucking name and a half. isn't it? according to the suit, Ventura was earning a thousand dollars a week by verbal agreement. When he started as a color commentator with Titan in 85, although he had signed a standard wrestling contract in 86, he tried to quit to make it as a movie actor, but returned later that fall under another verbal deal. And then in late 87, he hired Barry Bloom to negotiate regarding his appearances on Saturday night's main event with Dick Eversall, but those negotiations broke down. And when the 87, 88 series began, Ventura wasn't part of the shows a few weeks later in Bloom's negotiation with Dick Glover. When the subject of videotape royalties came up, Glover told Bloom Titans policy was to pay royalties only if it was a tape featuring one performer. And because he believed that was a company policy, Ventura signed a contract waiving the rights to videotape royalties and remained with Titan through the summer of 91. Of course, we know the result here. Uh, Ventura is going to win $801,336 and six cents and another 8,600 and change for merchandising claim. And this is a, a landmark case and change is probably the way the company does business forever. I mean, even today, uh, old timers who aren't there any longer get a statement quarterly that's as thick as a fucking book uh, for the royalties and everybody's getting checks now um i don't know what fascinated me more about this i guess that a thousand dollars a week is what commentating was paying back then uh, fair to say that the commentators are doing a lot better these days <laughs> i have no idea what the hell they're doing these days but i would hope it'd be better than that eh, but then again 52,000 a year guaranteed isn't bad. Um, and you also have to understand that Jesse could come in and knock out right three to four weeks worth of TV in one day <laughs> at that time. So it was come in once a month for that money, not a bad gig at all. And that chain, that was back when he was doing prime time with gorilla and not doing a whole lot of stuff. But, you know, as his role grew, I, I think his contract changed as well. And as far as Dick Glover misrepresenting anything, I, I don't believe that Dick Glover misrepresented anything either uh, in any way, shape, or form. Because what Dick told him was exactly how it was, and I think it was an interpretation by the court that was different because Jesse claimed since his voice was on there that he was a performer and that he should get royalties when no other commentator had that situation. And obviously no one else claimed it either. Um, 
Wait, are, you, are a... you saying that on the heels of Jesse suing like this and being successful that nobody else ever came forward and did the same, whether it was gorilla or Bobby or Sean Mooney or Shivani, nobody no. else popped up no. and said, Oh, what about me? No. And I think it was because Jesse's contract was a wrestler contract or, or something like that. And, and again, that's, I'm fucking grasping at straws. Cause I don't know, but I, I do know Dick Glover very well. And I know that Dick Glover is, wait, are you saying Dick Glover? No, Dick Glover. Oh, you, you had like a silent G in there. Like the G is silent. Like lasagna. I felt like you were just saying no, Dick Glover. Yeah. Dick Glover. Dick Glover. I got it. Dick Lover. Dick Glover. It's I, like, yeah. Okay. Now you see, you're like Paul Heyman teaching me Kvetch. It's Kvetch where there's no K in Kvetch, but it's Kvetch. I don't even know what you're and saying. It sounds like you're sneezing. You don't know what Kvetching is. I'm from Alabama. There ain't no Kvetching down here. Kvetching is a, is, but, or as Paul Heyman would say, Kvetch, uh, Kvetching, uh, is a Yiddish term for like bitching or griping. Motherfucker, you think I know Yiddish? We got Baptists down here. Come on. Hey, let's I talk. Let's... You hung out at the synagogue down the street. <laughs> let's talk about Tom Brandy. Uh, he's been working the independence as Johnny Gunn and Meltzer would report that he's been contacted about coming in to do a motorcycle cop gimmick, supposedly designed after Eric Estrada on chips. Now, of course we know that doesn't happen. He winds up coming in a South and Sear. Do you remember it being kicked around a motorcycle cop? No, but I do remember, uh, Tom and there were a few different times that we brought Tom in for tryouts. Uh, great look could work, but in my opinion, I think Tom was always just missing it. that it factor. Yeah. So when, when he would come in for a tryouts, it would be, ah, oh, you know what? Yeah. He's a good looking guy. Yeah. He can work, but I, I don't know if you can get the next level out of him. Um, so that may have been something Tom was thinking of. He was here in the, he's like the dreaded good hand, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where you is, know, if you need a utility player, you need a guy to have some good matches and make some other guys look good. He's probably good with that, but he's not going to be on the WrestleMania poster. Right. Let, let's talk about, um, the idea of a motorcycle cop. I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, you, you did a fucking hockey player and you did, you know, a, a garbage man. And I mean, there were lots of a dentist and a repo man and a IRS agent. So there's plenty of occupational gimmicks. And we are in that era where Terminator two made that sort of motorcycle cop, maybe a, a cool thing again. Why don't you think you ever rolled the dice on a motorcycle cop too close to big boss man? You think maybe? No, I'm kind of liking the idea. Oh, Jesus. If I, if there's a fucking motorcycle cop on SmackDown, I'm sorry, y'all. I didn't mean for that. I got to mm. fucking keep these ideas to myself now. I didn't. Mm. We can get motorcycle no. cops are us a call tonight, baby. God damn it. If Finn Balor comes back on a motorcycle, I'm fucking oh, canceling the yes. podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's get to in your house. It's a big card here. 10 matches, but only six are on the pay-per-view. A new three-man team at the broadcast booth here. You've got JR, the King, and oh my, does he have it? One, two, no, he doesn't. Vince McMahon. Uh, you know, we it's been a little while since we played uh, uh, Vince's jukebox here. What are some of your favorite 
Vince moments on commentary. And then from there, oh my, look at, oh, what a maneuver. Good. Oh, yeah. That was charismatic. I forget that. I used to do the whole, I used to do the whole Sean, uh, entrance and I forgot it other than most charismatic, most flamboyant, whatever the fuck. Um, that was always my favorite. Cause it's like, he's gargling a fucking razor blades. Arisa Franklin. It's been a while since you Cobra commanded the mic. I appreciate that. This is the first WWF pay-per-view commentator role for JR since Royal Rumble 94. Uh, there he paired up with gorilla monsoon to call the razor Ramon IRS match. It's also his first full call of a pay-per-view since King of the ring, 1993. I got to ask why the deviation to the three man booth and how excited is Jr. here to be back where he's at his happiest. Um, (laughs) you know, this seems like a recurring theme too, because it was, you know, again, Vince's in his mind and and ours, we're going to fucking get Vince out of that commentary role. We're going to get him, move him on out, make that transition, slide Jr. in there, but you got to do the transition. So let's move him in, start getting him in and, and getting them used to him. And then we can make that transition. Um, that's all it was. So let's talk a little bit about, um, the decision to go with the three man booth. I know that you're going to argue this, but you guys had always been a two man booth and now you're a three man booth. Just no, to- we were two- no, 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 no. Vince, Jesse, Bruno, Vince, Piper, honky. It was always a three man booth. Well, but those guys would sort of float in for a little bit here, there, like on a pay-per-view, this was kind of unique. Was it not for a pay-per-view? We would usually go with like gorilla and Bobby through the years. And then I'm just, yeah, it was a change up, but we, we did both has nothing to do with it being Eric Bischoff, Steve McMichael and Bobby. Heenan Jesus Nitro. Christ. You, do you think we would want to replicate that fucking horse shit? I mean, Bobby Heenan, come on. Bobby was great. Thank God. Bobby was there. Whoa, whoa, but Eric whoa, whoa. and Steve McMichael, please. Okay. You, you cannot sit there with a straight Alabama face. I can't. I can't. You're right. And tell me that was good. I'm just trying to stir it up. I want you fired up. It's been a while since I got you fired up. Okay. Well, you can't fucking say that was good. All right. You know what else? Who I would can't ever say? want to replicate Eric Bischoff and Steve McMichael doing anything? Are they going to be the commentators on SmackDown on Fox? Is it going to be Eric Bischoff and Steve McMichael? Yeah. Okay. And, and Finn's coming down little fucking motorcycle helmet. We've, we've ruined the wrestling today. Uh, the warm up match here. Can't believe it. Hunter Hearst Helmsley lost a match. Can you believe it? They lost a mistake. I know if you could go back and change one thing about the show, it would be Hunter going over on the pay-per-view, not losing underneath in the dark match. Sure. Of course, uh, four years later. These guys are, uh, well, things are going to look a little different, you know, when it's Rikishi and triple H, it's amazing that these are the same guys, uh, I did Sa- it for the rock. There you go. Savio Vega is going to be in here on the first match on the show, taking on a guy whose gimmick was maybe ahead of its time. He's clearly ripping off Robert De Niro and Cape fear, but you can't watch this now and not think about early Bray Wyatt, Waylon Mercy, former Dan Spivey. 
Of course, at this point, he doesn't look like the old Dan Spivey. Uh, a because of father time B because of the gimmick. I enjoyed it just because I hadn't seen much of Waylon mercy and, uh, Meltzer didn't like it nearly as much as me. He gave it a quarter star. He says, mercy's knees and back are so bad. It's almost as if he's Andre, the giant at the end, uh, because he doesn't put his body into his blows because of his injuries. Every offensive blow looks lame, which is even worse for a big man than a small man, because at least a small man can use agility moves rather than punches and kicks. Stopping the push of this character as this match did definitely constitutes a mercy killing. They did a lot of near falls at the end. Some of which were okay. Others were just plain pitiful. And in one case, the ref stopped the count when mercy clearly didn't even get his shoulder up. Um, not a great match, but I loved seeing Whale and mercy here just because I hadn't seen a lot of it. What'd you think watching it back this week for the first time in a long time? Well, it definitely wasn't. Oh my God. You've got to see this match. I think I enjoyed it for the same reasons you did, because I like Dan Spivey, uh, the human being, and I really liked the gimmick. Um, yeah, it wasn't a great match. So, I mean that you can say that about that, but for me, for nostalgia going back and, and watching that, that was fun. And that was, that was one of those matches that that was a fun gimmick. And it was something that people still to this day kind of remember, Hey, you remember that guy with the tattoo on his head and he kind of talked like this, know what I mean? So for me, I enjoy, I enjoy the gimmicks. Yeah. Get a pace. You're a gimmick at yeah, chases. So I enjoyed the Waylon mercy gimmick. The Waylon mercy gimmick is, uh, of course, very loosely based on Max Katie in the 1991 remake of Cape fear. Of course, that's the De Niro character. He's got the jet black hair. He's got the, uh, uh the white wife beater, quote unquote, t-shirt. He's got a Hawaiian shirt. He's got some strange. He's got tech. what kind of shirt? Like a Hawaiian shirt, right? Hawaii. Okay. And he's got like all these weird tattoos, including like a dagger on his forehead, sort of, uh, Manson like maybe, but there's lots of, uh, I don't know. I, I like you. And then I like the character. He's speaking in this calm yet somehow sinister manner. And he says something like lives are going to be in whale and mercy's hands. You know what I mean? I just think that that was good stuff. And obviously we've seen some influence in that in later years. And he's shaking hands with the fans and thanking them for coming to see him wrestle. And he's thanking the referee and just really, really good shit. If, if Spivey wasn't as beat up, what do you think was possible with this Waylon mercy character here in 95? Oh my God. If you had been able to take Dan Spivey 10 years earlier, I think that it would have been take this same character and move it to 1985, he'd be working with Hogan multiple times on top. And that would have been one of those characters that would be forever ingrained in everyone's memory. Because by this point, Danny was just so beat up that, you know, a lot of that gimmick was to disguise that the athleticism wasn't there anymore. His, his knees and back were just shot and he was in a lot of pain. So, the promos, the, it was all heavily character driven. And a lot of that shit came out of Spivey's head. 
So, I mean, he really embraced the character and timing on it. I think, again, 10 years earlier, we'd be talking about all those Hogan's Waylon Mercy matches. I know we're not going to ever really do a deep dive on this character because there's just probably not enough to constitute a whole show. But so because of that, I want to sort of sidebar here. When you guys first talked to Spivey, are you there when the character, this feels like a Bruce Pritchard project. Are you there when you're sort of describing what this character is and do you tell him to go watch the movie and, and get some gear that looks like that and talk with the Southern drawl or what's the direction and how is it received by him? Uh, it was received by him. Great. And I, I think a lot of it came from his head. A lot of it was Dan's Dan's whole gimmick and, in, in selling Vince on it and Vince more than anything, the promos made that character like Jake, the snake Roberts. Jake didn't have to yell at you. Jake brought it down. So you would have to listen to me, my man. Come on in a little closer. And he would pause and you would wait for that next word to come out. The same thing with Waylon Mercy is Waylon brought it down. So you would lean in to listen to him and he was creepy. So you kind of turned away, but you couldn't take your eyes off of him at the same time. And it was, you forgot about the work and you just thought, wow, this guy's a big son of a bitch. He's devastating. And unfortunately, sometimes you had to get to a point like this where he had to, had to wrestle a guy that could go in Savio all day long, get Dan Spivey over in squash matches. Um, at this period, but it just couldn't hold. And Dan embraced that gimmick. Dan just loved the gimmick. And, and when you watch it, you, I think it comes through. <laughs> Dan Spivey became Waylon Mercy. That was he, good stuff. He lived it. We should mention during this match when, uh, Waylon's going for like a sidewalk slam, Doc Hendricks does a cut in and says that Owen Hart is not yet to the building. And that's noteworthy because he's in the main event. And after the match, we go backstage and gorilla monsoon is trying to grill Owen's manager, Jim Cornette about the location of Owen Hart and Jim Cornette is adamant that the main event will still happen as planned. It's been a while since I've seen Cornette flipping out on WWF TV like this. That motherfucker is probably, is he one a or one B best manager ever? Oh God, definitely one B just behind Bobby, right? Maybe three B. Oh, really? Okay. Let's talk about that. Who else is in the conversation besides Bobby and, and Cornette? Oh God, Bobby Heenan, Gary Hart. You putting Again. Gary Hart in there with Bobby Heenan and Jim Cornette. Yeah. Gary was psychological. He was fucking great. Oh, fuck. You go back and watch old Gary Hart. Nobody could touch him at the time. I think Cornette would even agree with you on that. I don't think Cornette agrees with anybody on purpose these days. Well, this is could be true. <laughs> By the way, though, motherfucker, uh, are you listening? Have you heard any of his stuff lately no, on sir. the pod? It's fucking, it's fucking tremendous. Uh, free plug. Go check out uh, Cordy's drive-through. Comes out on Mondays. Man, that dude is full of wrestling knowledge and still as sharp as ever. Great listen. Next sharp up, attack. Oh, for sure. And you just hope that that tax not pointed at you that day, but it fucking might be, uh, next up, we got Henry Godwin and, uh, he's going to be wrestling Sid here. They're going to go seven minutes, 23 seconds. As you might imagine, Sid gets the win. It gets a half a star. 
Uh, Godwin is selling the back from a TV angle where Sid had power bombed him on a show that aired the previous day. And, um, Meltzer would say Godwin was okay. Sid's offense was horrible. He tried bumping, but his timing and his bumps looked terrible. And the finish sees Godwin use the slop drop, which is like a reverse TDT, but Ted DiBiase pulls him off. And later the Godwins come off the ropes. DiBiase trips him. Then Sid delivers a leg drop and a power bomb for the pin. And after the match, Sid shoves Godwin to the floor. Sid and DiBiase get the slot bucket. They start arguing about who's going to be the one to dump it on Godwin. And at that point, Bam Bam comes out. He's intercepted by Kama. They attack Bigelow. Godwin gets the bucket, dumps it on DiBiase. The match was just sort of there for me. It was sort of fun to see Kama the fighting machine before he was the godfather again. And, uh, maybe miss bam, bam. What'd you think of this match? Probably bowling shoe ugly. Will that be an accurate description? Yeah. You know, what, what went through my mind is more than anything. This is a great example of you're trying to elevate someone in Henry Godwin with someone of Sid's stature. And unfortunately you hope they're going to meet somewhere near the top so that it brings Godwin up more than it brings Sid down. And in this instance, I think that it just kind of didn't even get to the middle, unfortunately. It was such a clash of styles. You know, Henry's a big, thick, strong son of a bitch, and he's not – Sid's a big, strong son of a bitch. Neither one of them are bump-taking machines. They need smaller guys to be able to work around them and work with them to make their size and their power be accentuated. So, yeah, bowling shoe ugly is a good way to describe it. Just no chemistry, no mesh. And the design of it was to bring Godwin up and to hopefully take him up to the next level and to the next stratosphere because he had the personality he had the size and try to take him to hillbilly, you know, make him that work in hillbilly gym. This didn't, this one didn't work for me at all. The only fun thing is, is DiBiase getting slopped. I feel like we should mention too, that as a reminder, Sid was in the world title match in the main event at the most recent in your house. And now he's working with Henry O here. Uh, after the, uh, we have match, big plans for Henry gorilla monsoon gives Jim Cornette two options for the main event. Either Yoko is going to wrestle diesel and Sean by himself, or Cornette's going to find a replacement that will have to be sanctioned as one half of the tag team champions for the night. And of course, after Jim makes sure all the other stipulations remain the same, he goes to look for a new partner. That takes us to our next match. Davy boy, Smith. Thank you. Gets a win over bam, bam, Bigelow in 12 minutes after a power slam. It was an okay match. I guess maybe a little too long. Got a star in three quarters. And this is the, really the first time that, uh, bulldog has turned heel. Uh, he turned heel right before SummerSlam on the August 21st raw. I think this is the first time he's like a heel single. Of course, I guess there was a time where the bulldogs weren't always baby faces, but Chat me up. Why was uh, Davy Boy right to be a heel in this era? Just when you looked at who your baby faces were, you needed somebody who could sort of counterbalance some of that, or what's the thinking in making Davy a heel? Well, the idea was split up the tag team with Lex and Davy Boy, 
and Davey go heel. It was something Davey wanted to try and Davey really wanted to do. But we thought that is that tag team, those guys splitting up and then Lex left. So you need something new for Bulldog. Um, but we had actually split them right before that, before Lex left. And a new coat of paint or a new paint of coat with Bulldog and trying to get him out there. And you, you change his opponents up a little bit, change his attitude. And it was something fresh for Davey. Let's talk about, you know, the way he decides to become a heel. He's, he's going to change his look. He's going to cut off his hair. He's going to switch to long tights. Um, what's, what's the, when, when a guy's going to change from baby face to heel, does the company come to him and say, okay, we really need you to change your look. I mean, once upon a time you would start growing a black beard, maybe start wearing dark clothes in this era. Is there a meeting like that? Or is it just sort of understood that mm, probably need to freshen up your look a little bit? Yeah, there is. And, and talking to him about, you don't want people to associate you with the old smiling, happy-go-lucky Brit Davy Boy Smith. We, we need to see some kind of physical change. And this is also, you know, I go back to the JR ranch. Huh, fresh. I, I don't know why, why, if, if you're going to be a wrestler, you got to have long hair. Is that, is that just like 101 wrestler? You got, you got to have the long hair. Well, fucking cut your hair off. I'd see your traps. I'd see your shoulders. You look bigger with, with short hair. Shit, that's all Davey had to hear. I look bigger with short hair. Um, but it was. It was a conscious effort to try and change his look up and make him different. You see a difference in attitude. You see a different change in the way that he looks. So, yeah, talk to him ahead of time. Let's talk a little bit about Bam Bam Bigelow. We should mention that earlier this same year, he's on last with Lawrence Taylor at WrestleMania. Um, and now maybe not so much. Allegedly he was having some problems behind the scenes with the click. Do you chalk all of that up to rumor and innuendo or what else would you sort of put him his maybe sliding down the cards what would you attribute that to bless his heart i'll tell you what i attribute it to is that when it came time to change bam bam i'll put bam bam in the same category that i will put diesel in going from heel to baby face the characteristics of the heel that the audience begins to like if you take those away from them as a baby face you're kind of taking away the cool shit. Bam Bam goes babyface, and all of a sudden he's coming out in bright, shiny new gear and the flames shooting out and shit. And it came across very disingenuous with Bam Bam when he made the turn. You can look at him as a viewer, and he was a scary-looking dude with the fucking flames on his head and everything. He looked intense. He looked like a mean son of a bitch. I can believe him being a bad guy. Right. You needed, you needed something more for the audience to get behind him. And they were starting to get behind him as a heel because he was a tough son of a bitch. But when we turned to babyface, he began working like he wasn't as tough. He began selling for things that he didn't sell for as a heel. And the audience just kind of farted on it. 
they either they didn't want him as a baby face all the way. Uh, maybe he was just going to be that tough heel that they respected. But it did not click with the audience. And we saw with him on top in that top spot that, um, man, I'll even go back to fucking Bam Bam when he first came in with Humperdinck. They thought that he was going to be the, the second coming, and he just didn't draw. And Scott's a hell of a worker, man. He, he's he's a goddamn, he was a hell of a worker, bumping big man, great big man. But sometimes he wanted to show off what he could do physically and athletically instead of being that killer monster heel. And there, there's a fine line there. Well, I can't wait to talk about the next match. Before we do, though, we should mention that Bob Backlund's going to come out, do a, a crazy routine, insulting the crowd. It is what it is. But then he introduces. You know, that's, you know, that's not a routine. No, I've met him. That's him in real life. That's Bobby. Yeah. And uh, even at his advanced age, he's like the most in shape motherfucker in the room, wherever he is. Yep. Uh, he introduces Dean Douglas. Dean Douglas's theme music starts with fingernails across a chalkboard. If you've never heard that go out of your way, not to Dean comes in, does a little bit of mic work. And then he introduces razor Ramon, which is a little odd maybe, but, uh, the backstory here is the one, two, three kid was recently wrestling. Dean Douglas is obviously in a feud with razor Ramon and the one, two, three kid has recently wrestled Dean Douglas and Dean had plenty of opportunities to pin him, but would always pick his head up before three. So he could continue to beat on him. Of course, you can imagine where this is going. There is a, a ref bump. Douglas misses a splash off the top. Ramon uses the razor's edge. Backlund's holding the ref to keep him from turning around and counting. So one, two, three kid does a run in and counts the fall, but Ramon doesn't see that it's one, two, three kid making the count. So when he gets off of Douglas and stands up and realizes that's who it is, he gets a shoving match with one, two, three kid that allows Douglas to come from behind with a rolling reverse cradle for the pin. Now the trouble is the shove on Waltman looked great. But the cradle from Douglas could not have looked more shitty. It is the shittiest roll up that you will see until SummerSlam 97 when one of the combatants is paralyzed. Uh, and after the match, Ramon and Kid have a pull apart again with the agents. Pretty good story involved in this one, but the finish sort of fucked it for me. Two and a quarter stars. What did you think of the match? Well, the match was very good. The match, the body of the match, all that shit I thought was very good. Um, I love the shit with one, two, three kid and that whole story. Yeah. The, the cradle wasn't best, but I think people can forgive that for the match and, and everything else in there for me. Uh, I know razor didn't like working with Shane and felt that Shane was always a step behind and you, unfortunately, when you go back and you watch those matches, it's. It is different, and and Razor was bringing it, and I think Shane was rusty and hadn't been in the ring in a while when he came up, and I don't know that he just ever caught up. He never caught up to that pace. But this match I didn't think was that bad. You know, I think that, that Razor may have slowed down a little bit to, to make it work. Um, 
but that was all that was Shane's rap when he got here. And Shane and I used to have talks about it all the time. And Shane would say, he goes, man, I just I need more ring time. I gotta get in there. I'm just rusty. And and um it didn't come. Scott Hollis said about Shane, if he has to work with somebody and they suck, then they have heat with him. Scott says that Shane came in with the reputation of being great. And Scott said his role was upper middle baby face. And when you went through him, then you'd go to work with Kevin or Shawn Michaels. But if you couldn't have a good match with him, then you went down. And Scott said when Shane came in, he thought he could do the same thing with Shane that Scott did with Shawn because Shane was about the same size. And Scott thought he was probably as good of an athlete, but Scott said, no, he's slow. He's heavy. And he thinks Shane is so overrated. So not a fan. And it's been very, Shane's been very clear about his feelings about the click. And when Scott Hall popped up in ECW once upon a time, when he was sort of on the outs with WCW, Bam Bam Bigelow with Shane Douglas and Chris Candido met him at the door. They didn't forget everything that happened here in the WWF and felt like this is our territory. And I don't know, man, uh, Shane Douglas and the click just, uh, didn't click hard in the pun, huh? No, they didn't. And to razor's credit though, I mean, razor went, I mean, people went to Shane razor went to Shane said, Hey man, you need to step it up. We're, we'll work with you. Let's get the ring rust off. And I just don't know that it came fast enough or that it ever really came during the whole Dean Douglas stuff before Shane left. So it, it wasn't for lack of trying. And there were people that did go to Shane and I believe Razor went to Shane agents had gone to Shane. Vince went to Shane. So it wasn't like it was a secret to him. And yeah, it just the click didn't click it. He didn't click with Razor. That's for sure. He didn't click with Sean either. We should mention that Shane had been in the WWF in the early nineties as a babyface single. And he was sort of like a, a temporary member of the rockers when Shawn Michaels was recovering from a knee injury. And around that same time, he had like the seventh longest time in the first four years of the Royal rumble, which was rumble 91. So there were chances where he thought, Hey, maybe this guy's going to be something. And I think most people remember him with Johnny ACE and WCW as a dynamic dude, but then he really, caught, a bunker, dude. he really caught fire in ECW with the whole franchise character. And that's when he comes in here. And of course this doesn't work out. So he's going to go back, do that again, and then wind up showing up in WCW. But in back in that initial run in, in 91, I think Shane has said something like Vince had a gimmick for him where he's going to be some sort of a rock star. And he had even, I think recorded some music with Jimmy Hart, but his dad got ill. So he leaves the company to take care of his dad for a little bit. And thinking about maybe going back to school, of course, it doesn't work out Sticks with wrestling. Uh, do you remember there being, I know you weren't there in 91, but do you remember there being a discussion of, Hey, we could throw another gimmick on him. Maybe make him a rock star. I don't remember. I've never heard of a rock star gimmick, but I do know that throughout the years that there was always interest in Shane and whether that oh, fuck, I'll go back to the late eighties. There was interest in Shane. So for whatever reason, it never worked out until the Dean Douglas thing. And that didn't work out. Explain the Dean. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. So explain the Dean Douglas character. Some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the gimmick. 
Dean Douglas was like a the, that uh, horrible school teacher principal that used to walk down the hall with the paddle and was a complete asshole to everybody in school that was an abuse of power and an abuse of authority. Um, so he was Dean, and we took the, you know Shane Douglas from the Shane Douglas stuff and made him the Dean, Dean Douglas. And it was this professor or principal, whatever you want to call him, from hell. I wanted him to paddle people after he was done with them. That would have been fun. Okay, next up, this is an interesting match, my friends. We've got the pirate, as you like to say, Jean-Pierre. He's going to go 16 minutes and 37 seconds with Bret Hart. Bret does a promo beforehand backstage and set, and finishes by saying something like, uh, he's some sort of pirate, huh? Well, tonight he's going to walk the plank and that's the go home line of the promo. And then we get a shot of him taking, they, did, they a, didn't have writers then. Yeah. So that's the talent doing their own stuff. So he takes a few steps, uh, right through the, in your house set. And it is really a cool shot. If there's one thing on this show to see, I really loved the transition where he's backstage. I don't know. It's a little thing. He's backstage doing the promo, takes just a couple of steps and goes right through the front door on the in your house set. And the camera follows him through and the way Vince was pitching all of this saying, you know, and we're in your house and Bret Hart is in your house. And he's really trying to drill in your house, in your house, in your house, really a cool shot. And, uh, Meltzer really liked the match. He gave it four stars, probably the best match on the card. If you're going to watch one match from this show, it should be this one, but Make sure you see that promo so you can see the walk the plank line and the really cool entrance. I thought it was a good match. And, uh, of course we know how it ends. Bret Hart wins with the sharpshooter 16 minutes, 37 seconds. What'd you think of the match? You know, Pierre's not long for this world, but he's putting on a good show here. Yeah, it was a hell of a match and you go back and you look at Brett's matches during that time, Brett was going to get him. Brett was going to get that crowd come hell or high water. It, if you give him time, Brett's going to go out and, and get you and tell you a story. And that's exactly what he did in this situation. The, uh, the buildup for this, I, I don't think that wait, wait, no, let's tell everybody. Why are these guys having a match? What's at stake? What's the issue? What's the hot angle? What's the beef? The pirate took his jacket. The pirate took his jacket. This is 1995. Motherfucker. Hang on. 1972 Houston, Texas. Fucking Dory Funk Jr. Brought it, came out with his West Texas state university football jacket and would wear it to the ring and work a program with Jose Lothario and Funk screwed Jose. And then Jose got screwed over again. And Jose said, you know what? Fuck it, man. I beat you. And if I'm not going to take your belt, I'm going to take your jacket. And Dory Funk was fucking hot. And I, I will, to this day, man, I've got the program. Ben Porella, come and get it, says Jose to Dory Funk Jr. Ben Porella, come and get it if you want it. And the jacket was more important to Dory Funk Jr. than the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, by God. Brett didn't see it. Why don't I just get a new jacket? 
First, did you? God damn it, Brett. It means something to you. If the jacket means something to you, it'll mean something to other people. If you tell us it means something to you, then it'll mean something. Ben for AI. Just so we're clear, in case you haven't put together the country math on this one yet, dear listener, this was Bruce's idea. You can tell from the way he just pitched this fucking Jose Lothario bullshit. Jose Lothario bullshit. Well, you love that angle so much. You tried to recreate it with the hitman and a goddamn pirate. Don't you be smirched, good goddamn name of Jose Lothario. Well, I'm just saying, you're out here trying to defend this shit. Even Lawler on commentary says something like, Well, wasn't he going to give away the jacket anyway? What's the difference? He gives away his sunglasses every time. Yeah, you know what? Fuck Lawler for ruling it, too. <laughs> By the way, this is, uh, this is ben real. Moran! They're on pay-per-view here. Your former world champion, your tippy top guy. Ah, uh, yeah. Wrestling okay. for a leather jacket. That jacket meant more to Dory than the fucking championship. If Brett had made that jacket mean something and been upset when that fucking dastardly goddamn what do pirates do? They steal shit. They steal your booty. They plunder. They steal your booty. They steal your plunder. They steal your booty. They're looking for booty. They like booty. Pirates dig booty. So does old Dick Lover. Well, so let's talk about what you're doing with Brett here. Uh, and the match is great. I'm not going to argue that the the premise may be a little silly, but this premise, like, is I, soft. I feel like if Brent Hart was going to go punch Vince McMahon in the mouth, November of 97. Okay. Maybe that would have been a fine time. But you know, September of 95 wouldn't have been bad either. So far, he's feuded with Bob Backlund, Hakushi, Jerry Lawler, Isaac fucking Yankum, and now a goddamn pirate. Now, this is the former world champion. We've wrestled an evil dentist, a king, a Burger King, a crazy politician, a Japanese man covered in tattoos who can summon lightning and shit, and a pirate. Bob Backlund, former WWWWWF <laughs> champion. You missed the W. WWWWWWWWWWWF. There you go. World Heavyweight Champion. Okay. Credible opponent. One of the greatest of all times. Had a hell of a program with him. You know, I quit matches back and forth. Great shit. Jerry Lawler, the king of Memphis. Everybody's fucking hero. That was a hell of a fucking angle. King against King, King of the ring versus the King, Jerry Lawler. But dude, it's a dude. fucking kiss my foot match. And now yes. we're wrestling for a fucking leather jacket. Goddamn personal issues will mean more than fucking championship all the time. Well, they didn't. Okay. Hear. Hang on. Hakushi fucking guy coming in, trying to make him. And it's an opportunity to get made, get made with Bret Hart. Glenn Jacobs is a goddamn mayor of Knoxville, motherfucking Tennessee. Yeah, but Isaac Yankum ain't shit. And Pierre's a pirate. Yeah. Shiver uh, me timbers. Shiver me timbers. Fire. Again. Hey, throw me a ball, mate. It's a miracle. 
he's not in the main event. He's not your world champion. He's wrestling the pirate. Has a great match. It is a good match. Go watch the match. match. But I could see why Brett was maybe getting a little frustrated here. And this won't last long. He's going to win the world title from Diesel a couple months at Survivor Series. And by then, that fucking pirate's out of here. Uh, Jim Cornette is going to announce that the British Bulldog is going to be replacing Owen Hart in the match. And he's going to be one half of the tag team champions that night. So as a reminder, Yokozuna and Owen Hart, are your real tag team champions, but nobody knows where Owen Hart is. So Davy boy Smith is going to take the spot. Uh, Sean's out first as your intercontinental champion. Then of course, here comes diesel. Uh, as you may imagine, diesel and Sean surprise, they're victorious. And, uh, we have all the belts now. So Sean is now the intercontinental champion and a tag champion. Diesel is now your world champion and a tag champion. But the finish doesn't come when Diesel jackknife power bombs Davy Boy Smith. No, no. Owen Hart does a run in, even though they couldn't find him. And even though he wasn't the legal man or sanctioned as a tag team champion and he had been replaced, he takes the pin. Yeah. So they're running a storyline here that Owen's not going to show up. But the next night on Raw, they air a tape segment where Monsoon rules that. Since the pin was counted on someone not in the match, that the tag titles are going to go back to Yokozuna and Owen. So the guaranteed hype for the last few weeks that at least one title will change no matter what is of course broken. It's an okay match. Three stars, uh, probably not the best. I mean, a little bit of a clash of styles here. It's hard to argue that Sean could even have a bad match here. And Davy boy was a good worker, but. Maybe a bit of a styles clash with this foursome. What'd you think of the show and, and, and or the match? And what'd you think of the Owen situation and then reversing it the next night? Shaka Khan. You just done? Just <laughs> fuck this match. Hey. I hated the creative. <laughs> fuck it. Hey, I, I got it. I actually do have to do a sidebar here. I had three different people this week. Hit you with in the New York Khan? City come up to me and do Shaka Khan. One yeah. guy had a conversation with me. So if you're listening, <laughs> Hey man, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I love you to my New York, uh, peeps. There was an, I used to be over in, in the hard cameras at SmackDown. I think that was pretty cool shit. But, um, Hey, by the way, when you're in gorilla and you see one of your shirts on the hard cam and you're sitting right next to Vance, do you like elbow? I'm like, Hey, look, there's my shit. Um, you should, because then we can get our shirts on wwshop.com and make some real fucking money. Yeah. Well, you know, just pitch it next time. Okay. I'll do that. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for that. That was pretty damn cool. Um, the match was good. Oh, I'm not arguing that it's not a bad match. It's just the finish finish was here's, here's what the finish was. The finish was in my opinion. The Dusty Rhodes um, mm. finish with Gary Hart. Yeah. Well, you didn't want to beat the heel, so you pinned Gary Hart. Right. We we always planned on switching the tag team titles to Sean and Diesel. But by the time we got there, Vince was like, God damn, they, why, would they, why would they even want the tag team titles? Right. So they have all the belts, Vince. And then you get the jealousy going between the two and then you blow them up and how can they defend the titles if they're at odds and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't get it. Just 
have the match, send Owen in, beat Owen, and then we'll, we'll reverse it. So technically the titles did change hands. Um, and that's, that's all there is to it. I mean, it's, it's, there wasn't any other big conspiracy or anything else other than that. And I think everybody involved was kind of like, huh? And Pat and I, in our head, we're, we're moving towards this story. And by the time we get there, Vince was like, ah, you know what? I don't want to break them up. I, well, they'll go, I, I can't beat them either. Cause you can't switch the, the titles, the intercontinental or the WWE title. So we'll just beat Owen. And then Cornette's got a technicality you can bitch about. Um, what did, not, Corn- what did Cornette not think one of, of our it? finer moments? What Cornette think of this was like something he would have had a meltdown about Conrad, you know, like when I explain to you sometimes about, um, dark spots in my memory where I just blank shit out. Yeah. Going back and watching this and looking at it going, Oh fuck. I, I blacked <laughs> it out because <laughs> it made no sense. It, it was cause immediately when you're in there, you go, Oh fuck. I remember this. Right. Oh shit. Um, can't win them all. Uh, sometimes you have shitty ideas. Sometimes you have great ideas like Ben Porea. Oh, fuck you uh, with that. What? I didn't say anything. Continue. So this, this would be up there with the. It was a nice idea going in. <laughs> Final execution. Not exactly what was intended when it started. Yeah. So it sucked. Needless to say. Yeah. I, uh, I gotta tell you though, I did enjoy watching the show. Uh, this was fun for, for what it was. It's the third in your house. You know, you've, you were there for all three of those at this point. Where do you think this one ranked? Is this one? Oh, definitely in the top three. There we go. There we go. Well, I'm looking forward to next week's episode, man. This is, uh, this was a fun episode to visit, but next week we're going back to 1997 and I, some of our listeners are like, what the fuck else is there for 97? Well, I got one more thing to squeeze out of there, baby. That's the September 22nd, 1997 episode of Monday night raw. And, uh, next weekend will be the anniversary of that. And it's such a historic show for a lot of reasons behind the scenes. This is the Madison square garden episode where Uh, Brett would meet with Vince and Vince would say, I can't honor your contract. I need to get out of it. See if Turner can still make you an offer. Austin can't work. So we're going to come up with something different. And that includes stunning Vince McMahon. And we're ready to take our mankind slash dude, love triple H feud to the next level. So we're going to have a street fight and Mick Foley is going to call on a persona. That's never wrestled in the company before. It's Cactus Jack, and he's debuting here in the company. This is a fun show. I'm looking forward to this one. September 22nd, 1997. And fitting, I guess, because you guys just went back to Madison Square Garden for Raw. What are you looking forward to talking about next week on the show? Well, as usual, we'll revisit the whole Brett saga and kind of get through all of that. But it was an interesting time with Steve Austin because 
we had such a dilemma as far as do we continue? Do we move on? And just a lot of the unknowns that were discussed and how, you know, how do we get to the next point in this story and what do we do? And there were just so many unknowns, but at the same time, man, shit coming forward with, with Cactus Jack first time, New York, that was pretty cool. And that was special for him. So a lot, a lot of shit to talk about on this one. A lot to talk about. Looking forward to it next Friday, right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka-ka. I can't believe you got that dumb shit over people actually saying that to you in public. They love me. Eh, we'll see. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.